Bush really did believe that he had no choice in the matter. He believed that after 9-11, a new wave was sure to be coming, that it would perhaps be even worse than 9-11 because it might well involve weapons of mass destruction. And from there, frankly, his imagination kind of took wing. Welcome to Vital Interest. My name is Karen Greenberg, and I am the director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School. Our podcast is designed to help you understand security in its many dimensions. Each week, we will bring you thoughtful voices from the worlds of policy, government, law, journalism, and advocacy. We will look at the challenges that confront us today and tomorrow, from pandemic to climate change, from terrorism to population migration, from war to peace all with an eye towards the rule of law, the protection of human rights, and the respect for civil liberties. Vital Interest Podcast is committed to making the world we live in more comprehensible, the part we play in it more engaged, and our futures more secure. It is our way here at CNS of connecting with our times and with one another. Welcome. With me today is Robert Draper, journalist, author, contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine and National Geographic. Robert Draper is the author of many books. His most recent is To Start a War, How the Bush Administration Took America Into Iraq. Hi, Robert. Hey there. How's it going, Karen? Good. Welcome to Vital Interest Podcast. Before we get to the book, I want to talk about your earlier books. Among your seven books, and you can correct me if I get this wrong, you've written three, now four, on U.S. politics dead certain on the presidency of George W. Bush, followed by one on the House of Representatives in a particularly dysfunctional time, which is hard to say now, but in 2011, Mm -hmm. and one on the Tea Party and the disruption it wrought during the 112th Congress, basically the same period of time. And then you took a break from writing about politics in Washington, and you wrote about Pope Francis. Is that right? Yeah, it is. The Pope Francis book was largely the fruit of a few months I spent working on a National Geographic uh, story on that very subject. And so uh, they asked me to do a somewhat elongated version of that story uh, in book form, and that's what I did. And then you came back again <laughs> to politics, but more historical than the one mm-hmm. you had done before, to the Iraq War. Now, my first thought when I read the title of this book was, didn't we read this? And then I started reading it, and I realized that this was really a story worth telling in all of its detail. So my question is, it still perplexes me. What made you say, I'm going to write this book and getting into the war in Iraq? Well, I think some of it just grew out of a feeling of unfinished business. I had done this other book on George W. Bush, as you mentioned, uh, in 2007. The Iraq saga was a moving target then and uh, difficult to get my arms around. And there were other books that seemed to be definitive on the subject, but looking over my shoulder years later, I began to ask, you know, given that this will clearly be what defines the legacy of the Bush presidency, and and given how consequential that war was and continues to be, both domestically and abroad, it's worth revisiting for that reason alone. But then I looked at the other books and thought that, frankly, they, like my book, did not really lay a glove on these central questions, such as, you know, why was it 18 months after 9-11, but uh, George W. Bush decided to invade a country that had nothing whatsoever to do with 9-11. And could anyone or anything have talked him out of it? And did the intelligence ultimately matter? So there are all these ancillary riddles that I felt really were worth exploring. And, and perhaps no more so than now during the presidency of a reality TV star and political novice who rose to power. 
basically saying, look what expertise got us. Look what all these experienced Washington hands got us. They got us endless wars. That's how he differentiated himself from the pack. And so in a way, Karen, to answer the question of how did we arrive where we are today, we had to go all the way back to the point at which the U.S. government really lost the trust of the American people by taking us to war on false pretenses. Well, let's talk a little bit about George Bush, because there are different narratives about getting into the war in Iraq and how much Bush was committed to this and how early on. And I actually thought you had a little different take on this than I had thought before I read the book. So do you want to talk about how you see him in particular? Over and over, I had heard Bush say that he had not made up his mind to go to war early. Uh, And the evidence as I come through it pretty much bore that out, not just publicly, but privately. Bush said over and over to his advisors throughout spring, summer, and fall of 2002, my mind has not been made up. I do believe that the decision was ultimately and thoroughly George W. Bush's, that he was not you know, hypnotized by Dick Cheney and the neoconservatives, um, that this was not a play for Iraqi oil. It was not done to appease Israel to the degree that those were benefits, they were side benefits. And and Bush really did believe that he had no choice in the matter. He believed that after 9-11, a new wave was sure to be coming, that it would perhaps be even worse than 9-11 because it might well involve weapons of mass destruction. And from there, frankly, his imagination kind of took wing, replacing any foundation of facts. And so while I came to the conclusion that, that Bush didn't go into office wanting to go to war with Iraq, I also came to the conclusion that his decision to go to war was not based on a thorough pursuit of the truth, let's say. I mean, one of the things that's interesting is that by the time the United States gets into Iraq, by the time Colin Powell gives his famous speech before the the UN, they very much focused on the WMD narrative. But as you point out, there are other narratives. And one in particular that's interesting and that resonated with Bush for a while is the attempts very early on after 9-11 to link al-Qaeda with Saddam Hussein's Iraq. Can you tell us a little bit about how that story played out? On the very evening, late evening of September 11th, the Deputy Secretary of Defense, Paul Wolfowitz, sent out a tasking to the Defense Intelligence Agency. Uh, It had nothing whatsoever to do with the identities of the 9-11 hijackers or anything of that nature. Instead, Wolfowitz asked for whatever information the DIA could come up with on Iraq's historical ties to terror groups. Iraq was already on the mind of Wolfowitz, who had truthfully since the 1990s been seeking to depose uh, Saddam Hussein by military force. After 9-11, he saw his opportunity. And within a matter of days, four days, in fact, he got President Bush's attention on the subject of Saddam, and it never really went away. I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that Bush came to believe that Saddam uh, partnered with al-Qaeda on 9-11, though it is certainly true that Wolfowitz, Dick Cheney, and others were pressing the intelligence community on that point. However, where Wolfowitz and the rest of them succeeded was in giving Bush reason to believe that something like that could happen, that there could be a confederation of this sort of unholy alliance between Islamic extremist groups and Saddam Hussein, which, you know, frankly, on its face was a bit illogical, given that Osama bin Laden viewed the Iraqi regime, a secular regime, as as the very 
antithesis of the caliphate that he imagined. And, and he and Saddam were not exactly blood brothers. And yet, in Bush's mind, there came to be the notion that Saddam, who he believed hated America, who he believed wanted to do America harm, would find a similar adversary. Everything I've just described to you had zero foundation, in fact. And, and that is, I think, one of the most infuriating disclosures of my book. Yeah, and it kind of reminded me, it brought us into the present. Remember when Soleimani was targeted and killed in January of 2020 of this year, there was a whole narrative about links between Soleimani and Al-Qaeda, and in, in particular, 9-11 and terrorists related to 9-11. And so did it seem to you like an echo of trying to find a similar narrative? Yes. Yeah, so now, when I heard that Soleimani was essentially being pegged as the bogeyman who was behind every terror attack in the Middle East, it reminded me very much of those adherents to the notion first promulgated by this um, author named Laurie Milroy, yeah. that Saddam Hussein had been the man behind the 1993 World Trade Center attempted attack, and for that matter, the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, so um, th this notion that we sometimes tend to have, that if a person is bad, then he's capable of anything and may well have been responsible for everything, is kind of the creep of the imagination that took place as they regarded Saddam Hussein, who before 9-11 was never really viewed by anyone as a threat to America. He was geopolitically an inconvenience, maybe you can say a threat to stability in the Middle East, but to the American homeland, never. It's interesting. You talk a lot about individuals within the national security community at the highest levels, you know, Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld, Vice President Cheney, but you also talk a lot about the intelligence community itself. Right, which I have to say is a huge distinction between To Start a War and Dead Certain. The, uh, the latter book, which was published in 2007, benefited from this extraordinary access to the West Wing. But I interviewed literally not one person from the intelligence community. I started this book on the run-up to the Iraq War with a foundation of zero intelligence sources and ended up interviewing about 70 or 80. And so they provide really for the first time, I think, and um, for any book on this subject, a, a really fascinating window into the intersection between what was believed and what was actually known. And this, of course, is what the CIA's job is, to provide ground truth, but, but, they, but they seldom have hard, cold facts. Usually they make analytical assessments. And in the case of Iraq, analytical assessments was the very best they could do. And, and these often were really just semi-educated guesses. And to peel all of that back was, I think, the most fascinating thing for me from an authorial standpoint and, and uh, aspects of this whole narrative that for all of the justifiable criticisms that the intelligence failures were real, the biggest failure was the failure to rely on intelligence and instead to depart from it altogether. And so at a certain point, it just did not seem to matter to President Bush that, for example, there was a debate between the office of the vice president and the CIA on whether or not one of the 9-11 hijackers had met up with an Iraqi intelligence official in Prague in the months before the 9-11 attacks. That would have been really interesting if it were so. The CIA said it was not. Cheney insisted that it was true. And the president of the United States sat there and just kind of listened to it and never at any point said, excuse me, guys, can we 
get this straightened out once and for all because this is not a small detail. Instead, I believe the evidence is pretty clear that Bush finally decided that even if it hadn't happened, something like that might have happened or could happen. And once again, this imagination of a confederation that did not exist. Yeah, but one of the things that you also point out is that there was a lot of conflict of opinions and knowledge that never got presented to Bush. And in part, you say it's because Condoleezza Rice saw her job as very much, you know, keeping the battle away from him. So how much do you see that he didn't get presented some of these uh, disagreements? Yeah, it's it's certainly the case, Karen, that, that Bush can be faulted for a lack of intellectual curiosity. And it was never like him as it was, say, to Barack Obama uh, to say, excuse me, bring as many you know, points of view as you can on the subject. Nonetheless, I found personally, and so have many others who've dealt with Bush, that if you bring him opinions he doesn't want to hear, he might bristle at them, but he's not going to like throw you out of the room. He's not going to fire you. And in fact, ultimately, I think we'll reward people who bring those truths to him. Condoleezza Rice, his national security advisor, did not really see that as her job. She saw it as her job not to play out debates within the U.S. government before the president's eyes. She just figured he didn't like that. It wasn't worthy of his time. But instead, she believed her job was to facilitate a decision, to find a consensus among, for example, the State Department and the Defense Department, which were so often at war with each other, and bring that consensus opinion to the president, who could then either sign off on it or not. The problem was the consensus oftentimes did not exist and could not coherently exist. And further, the very fact that it didn't exist was itself an important thing to bring to the president, to say, you know, Donald Rumsfeld and Secretary of State Colin Powell were in vehement disagreement about our course of action here, Mr. President, and you should hear their points of view. You should see them debated out. Nothing like that ever occurred in, in the run-up to war. It is a bizarre fact that there was not one debate at the high levels of government about the advisability of going to war with Iraq. And instead, the only Americans that I could find that actually argued to the president, to his face, that he should not go to war were his 20-year-old daughters. It's extraordinary. I mean, one of the things that comes up is this fight between Powell and Rumsfeld, which is throughout the book. But running through that as well is sort of this commentary from Rumsfeld and from Cheney about discrediting the intelligence community and sort of a sense that they don't know what's going on. And the reason I'm bringing this up is you see uh, the Trump administration yes. very much turning on the intelligence community. And I just wonder if you see this as a persistent thing that's gone on from the time you wrote about your book till now. Or is it something that's in all administrations? I mean, historically, um, it has been the case that the intelligence community kind of exists to kind of screw up the decision space. Oh, yeah, I read this. You did write this. Yeah, the New York Times Magazine. And it's in. And it was a big piece. It was very good. Right, right. Thank you. Yeah, but it's. <laughs> but, uh, the ground truth, the uncomfortable truth, is often an inconvenient truth, and, um, and presidents bristle at it, but the best of them pay attention to it and ultimately appreciate it. In the case of the Bush administration, you're exactly right that, that um, I, I think, by the way, Bush himself was very dutiful, always received his briefings, always appreciated them, unlike the current president who gets them now once a week. I mean, Bush got them six days a week, and it was it, it was unthinkable that he, that he um, the son of a CIA director, let's not forget, um, would eschew those. 
what happened instead was that Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld and Paul Wolfowitz and others in the Bush administration would constantly point out to the CIA that, you know, you guys have been wrong in the past. You guys said that Iraq had no active nuclear weapons program after the Gulf War. And lo and behold, you were wrong. You were wrong in your assessment about, um, you know, when North Korea would launch a um, nuclear missile test. And, and uh, so you've been wrong about a lot of things. And therefore, we should not only not take what you say at face value, but we also should probably assume the worst. You know, since since you guys failed to predict the direst scenarios, let's instead embrace the direst scenarios. And you saw Dick Cheney do this in August of 2002 when he said, simply stated, there can be no doubt that uh, Saddam has weapons of mass destruction. Well, there was loads of doubt. The intelligence community had not concluded that at all. But Cheney felt liberated from having to go by the intelligence community's assessments because from time to time they had gotten it wrong. And that meant that he could embrace their findings when they comported with his views and ignore them when they could not. You have a passage in the book that really struck me in which you say there's a moment before Powell delivers his speech to the UN, you muse for yourself. Well, what if Powell had said no? What if Tony Blair had pulled back just a little bit. What if Jack Straw had pulled back just a little bit? And then you say, it would have given the dissenters inside government and in Congress some voice and some momentum to express their doubts about how they were being carried along in a narrative that they knew better than to accept and had questions about. It's a very powerful piece of the book. Is that the turning point? Sure. I mean, that's, you know, the dog that didn't bark, I suppose you could say, you know, this counterfactual that if in January of 2003, when Bush came to Powell and said, Colin, are you with me? I want you with me. I think I'm going to do this. If Powell had said no, then it could have unleashed this domino effect that you've just described, that Powell would probably feel obligated to resign. His senior staff would resign. His counterpart in the UK, Foreign Minister Jack Straw, would resign. That in turn would take down the Blair administration. That in turn would create an alternative narrative. It would give the weapons inspectors more time to find what we now know were no weapons at all. It, the media now would be turning against everything. And so, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's really sort of breathtaking to imagine all of that. Thus, I suppose, for some, the temptation is to blame all this on Powell. But it's also fair to say that Powell was the only person in the Bush administration to bring uncomfortable ground truth to George W. Bush, volunteering to him, as he did in their dinner in August of 2002, that if you break it, you own it. There could be a host of second and third order consequences that could really make a mess out of things, not least of them being your first term in office. While in the meantime, no one else was saying anything of that kind. You know, it's interesting because we've been in this war now forever. You know, we've been involved with Iraq since then. And then you write about Iraq and you write about what happens after the fall of Saddam and how the Bush administration attempts to build in a structure of governance and how that falls apart. Do you think that the Bush administration is surprised that it doesn't work? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Without question, surprise, in fact, that, you know, in, in the very last sentence of the penultimate chapter finds us 
just outside the Oval Office, Secretary of State Powell uh, standing there with Bush watching British troops liberate Basra. And what Bush is expecting to see is what everyone told him was going to happen, which is that there would be this jubilant crowd and they'd be throwing candies and flowers at the feet and and uh, and it would be this moment of unbridled joy. Instead, he sees all these looters and these people eyeing the, uh, the troops warily and he turns to Powell and he says, why aren't they cheering? It is this sudden moment where Bush actually sees stone cold reality. But, you know, Karen, I think the the axiom that my research does bear out is that in the march to war, all the direst forecasts of what would happen if we didn't invade Iraq came into play and all the sunniest forecasts of what would happen once we did invade Iraq came into play. There were all of these assumptions that about, you know, these terrible things that would happen to the American homeland, but all these, you know, ridiculously optimistic assumptions about how Iraqis would coalesce around uh, nascent democracy, put aside all their sectarian misgivings towards each other. And there was, again, ample reason to believe that that would not be so. There were so many people in the CIA and the State Department and, and elsewhere, uh, Brent Scowcroft for that matter, in his famous August 2002 Wall Street Journal op-ed entitled Don't Invade Iraq, mm. that, uh, that this was gonna be anything but a cakewalk as one administration supporter said. And yet, just as Bush believed Believed what he wanted to believe, it seemed about the worst case scenarios of not invading, he believed as well the best case scenarios about what would happen once he did. You spend a good deal of time criticizing the media. You know, it, it comes later in the book, mm -hmm. but you take a pause almost to look at your colleagues and those who publish you and your colleagues and to put some of the blame on them. And so I'm wondering if you think there were lessons learned from the reporting and the entire industry actually around the Iraq war, the presentation of the Iraq war. And if those lessons were learned, how we see that today. I don't think lessons were learned is the short answer. I, I do think those lessons have been internalized in two major entities, the US intelligence community, the CIA really did uh, come to reassess its analytical trade craft. And I think they've improved that a lot. And then the US military also did these really fabulous lessons learned volumes of material but in the media and in the political world, I don't think there's been a whole lot of discussion of this. I mean, much like um, political figures, when you ask members of the media, how did you get it so wrong? They tend to say, well, you know, I believed Bush and I shouldn't have, you know, Bush, Bush lied and, and I got screwed or, I'm, or I believed my sources and I shouldn't have. And, and I think that there were a host of biases that crept into the media's credulousness. I mean, some of these people lived in New York or Washington, so they were very proximate to the tragedy and very emotionally invested in preventing another such tragedy. Some of them had covered Saddam Hussein during the Gulf War, or for that matter, during the Iran War, when he used chemical weapons against the Iranians, and they believed that, that he was a truly bad actor and that uh, there certainly wasn't any harm in never giving Saddam the benefit of the doubt, but I think it colored their judgment as well. And some of them just bought into this notion that perhaps born out of the relatively happy experiences of the wars in Kosovo and Bosnia and our participation in same, 
that, that uh, war could be constructive. It could be brief. You know, it cost a minimum of blood and treasure and that we could have a real positive influence on the world. So I think there was a confluence of factors and also depends on which journalist you're looking at. But they helped provide a glide path for sure. They were not the skeptics that they should have been. And and no, I do not think that, that very many of them uh, have really come to look in the mirror about uh, why they were so grievously in error. So in terms of what the legacy of the decision to go to war in Iraq teaches us, and I don't mean the actual events themselves, but the way it happened, the squelching of internal dissent, the lack of vetting, the ability to use the fear from 9-11 and to use it for political ends. How much of this do you see as still um, having energy today? Well, I certainly think that um, wars you know, can unfortunately be a kind of political tool. And, and and while I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that Bush went to war for political gain, 9-11 did happen to be something that he deployed with political skill for the 2002 midterm elections. Mm-hmm. And the national security very much weighed heavily on the minds of the electorate who uh, reelected Bush in 2004. The things that are there to be learned from the Iraq experience are very, very basic and yet in their own way elusive and and they mainly boil down to the fact that the pursuit of truth matters and especially matters on the topic of war because war is messy and war invariably invites all of these unintended and costly uh, consequences i mean this was the time in 2002 and early 2003 to really be asking you know all these assumptions we've been making about how Saddam used to have weapons, so he must still have them now, and he's acting deceptive, so that means he's got something to hide. That maybe there really is another explanation for this, and maybe we should explore that possibility rather than assume the worst and invest so much of our blood and treasure in so consequential a fiasco. And and, uh, and that did not happen this time. If, if there's any lesson to be learned from it, it's really that, that it's worth slowing down, which did not occur in this particular case. It's worth uh, taking stock of all available resources to to try to get at the truth. And unfortunately, we are at a moment in time when truth has become a, an almost relative term. And, and that, I think, has its antecedents in, in, uh, uh, in the Iraq debacle. Because after all, Donald Trump says that every available term, why, do, why should we listen to these geniuses from the intelligence community? They're the ones who told us that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. That sort of gives him carte blanche then to ignore anything they say unless they just happen to say something that's a political benefit to him. So, so we are at a real crisis stage right now where the truth matters, but the truth is more elusive than ever. At the end of the podcast, I always ask one question, which is, what do we have to be hopeful for? And in your case... I'm really thinking about the abilities of our government. It's a pretty glum moment and a pretty gloomy moment to be talking about hope as regards government and other major institutions since the public has lost so much faith in them, sometimes justifiably, but in many cases now because they have been grossly caricatured or mischaracterized by the administration and by others who seek political profit off of um, uh, defaming what they refer to as the deep state. You know, if there was a deep state, we probably wouldn't have gone to war in Iraq. I suppose if there's anything to feel hopeful about, though, it is that uh, there's still, for whatever politicization one sees in the upper reaches of government, 
there still are plenty of people in the middle tiers um, who have worked very hard, for example, on cybersecurity to ensure that, um, our, that there's an integrity to our elections. They did an outstanding job in the 2018 midterm elections when there was um, plenty of reason to believe that Russian uh, wanted to interfere and, and yet um, minimal interference occurred. That is not due to our elected leaders. It's due to people who've worked in the trenches. And so I would say that that extends not only um, throughout the government bureaucracies, but extends as well to the media, where for all the mistakes that, um, uh, that we in the press have made, I think by and large, um, it's a very, very vigilant media right now. Uh, and, uh, uh, and I think that it is eyeing with appropriate skepticism, everything that's transpiring today. Uh, would that there have been more skepticism back uh, in the run up to the Iraq war, but it exists now, better late than never, I guess. So despite it all, the values of expertise and professionalism are still there and have been harnessed in some important ways. And we can hope that they continue to be harnessed to see us through this next step. Yeah. Yeah, expertise doesn't get you everything. I mean, we, we saw that because the you know the Bush administration was filled with experienced people. But um, consider the alternative. I, I, we're seeing the alternative. Experience matters. Well, let me just say thank you for this book. It's terrific. Thank you. It really takes you inside and it's written with a lot of generosity towards a number of the players. So um, thank you for sharing it with me and thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you, it's really my pleasure, Karen. Thank you for listening to today's conversation. We hope it made your day a little brighter, a little clearer, and a little more informed. Join us next time for the newest installment of Vital Interest Podcast. In the meantime, feel free to send us your questions at vitalinterestpodcast.org and to follow us on Twitter at VI underscore podcast CNS. And make sure to check out our daily morning brief, our weekly cyber brief, and our Vital Interest online forum at centeronnationalsecurity.org. Have a wonderful week and please stay safe.